Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 23 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm honored to have David Burback, an Associate Professor of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island, as my special guest on the podcast. Burback received a Ph.D. in Political Science from MIT and currently teaches U.S. Foreign Policy, International Relations, and Space Security at the War College. Before joining the faculty in 2007, Burback taught at the Army School of Advanced Military Studies and also worked for several foreign policy, analysis, and information tech organizations. Burback is an expert on China's space program, which is the topic of our discussion today. However, his views expressed on today's podcast are strictly his own and do not represent official positions of the Naval War College nor the U.S. Navy. Burback joins us from Newport in Rhode Island. David, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Well, Bruce, thank you very much for having me on today. Uh, First off, given the fact that the U.S. presidential election is now in limbo, how would a Biden administration affect how the U.S. responds to China's space policy? Well, it's a good question. And just uh, for your for your listeners uh, who probably will know the outcome of the election, we, we are currently at a point where it seems likely, uh, not certain, but likely that Joe Biden will end up being the next president. Um, so assume, if that's the case, um, I think we're actually likely to, to not see as dramatic a change as one might have guessed. Because there one of the uh, important things that's happened in Washington over the last several years is there's been a, a real bipartisan shift shift to be more concerned about China as a geopolitical competitor. And that's partly because China's become more assertive as a geopolitical competitor. Um, There had been hopes 20 years ago that by bringing China into the world trade system that they would liberalize, you know, somewhat like as uh, Gorbachev opened up with perestroika, the communist system pretty quickly fell. Well, that didn't happen. And uh, if anything, they have been going and they've been deliberalizing. So so I think even a Biden administration in kind of at the level of their overall relationship with China, things are not likely to become much more friendly. Uh, there are some specific, you know, specific areas of military competition where I think they might emphasize different things. But um, I think we're going to we will you will see similar levels of concern. So um, I actually think there'll, there'll be a fair amount of continuity, specifically at the level of, of how how we view China's space activities. What impact will the election have on our own Space Force? Well, you know, that's a good question because Space Force is very much uh, an initiative of the Trump administration. Initially, the initial idea traces back to some Republican members of Congress, um, but very much was picked up by Trump. Uh, If Hillary Clinton had been president, we would clearly not have a Space Force. That said... Um, things get institutionalized pretty quickly. I mean, Space Force is written into law. They've got, you know, they've, they, they don't yet have, have their own uniforms and they, they haven't even figured out what to call. You know, they, it's not clear if they're going to be spacemen or spacers or what. Um, but once you set up a bureaucracy and give people their own titles and their own budget, it's, it's pretty rare in Washington to undo that. So I think it's pretty unlikely that you would, even if the Democrats had taken Congress to, 
too. And it looks like the Republicans will hold the Senate. Um, I think Space Force is here. Um, I think the a Biden administration will probably move more slowly at expanding its missions and expanding its budget. Will probably, you know, take a more restrained definition of what you know. I, th- I, I think, you know, in the there are people who have very grand visions that you know Space Force ought to you know set up moon bases and you know kind of be you know do the equivalent of in the in the eighteen forties build building forts to help pioneers go out West. Um, I don't know that that would happen even if Trump were in office, but I think Biden is definitely going to keep space force, probably talk about it less and, and expand its budget more slowly than would have happened under Trump. But you don't think it's going to go away, in other words? I I really don't, um, especially because with the Republicans controlling the Senate, uh, the Republicans would have to go along with it at this point. You'd have to change the law to undo it. And I don't think they would want to undo what is seen as a signature administration, signature achievement of the previous administration. Um, and even if it were Democrats, you know, I think the Biden administration is going to have bigger things that they're worried about. I, I think their attitude would be, we wouldn't have done it, but it's done. So, okay, we'll go forward. So what impact uh, will the election of NASA's shuttle astronaut Mark Kelly as a senator from Arizona have on American space policy, do you think? You know, probably probably not much the we have i should say this is not the first time that this will he will be the third senator who's been an astronaut john glenn of course uh i mean spent much much more of his career as a senator than an astronaut he uh he was in orbit for a few hours and in the senate for a couple of decades uh till he well a few hours until he flew again on the space shuttle and then uh, after going to the moon uh harrison schmidt from new mexico was uh, a senator for oh, i forget if it was one or two terms back in the uh, around 1980. Um, so Kelly, he, I, I, I've looked and I have not seen any particular statements from him about space policy. He has definitely talked up science uh, in the context of COVID and the context of climate change. He's made a big deal about wanting to support science. And I would imagine that he would be supportive of NASA. Um, I don't think, you know, and as a freshman senator, your your ability to change things as a freshman senator are pretty limited. So uh, he'll, he'll add some expertise, but I wouldn't expect any major changes just because he's there. We're going to talk about Artemis a bit more in detail uh, later in the podcast, but how will the current election impact NASA's Artemis program to land two astronauts or at the Lunar South Pole by 2024? Well, let me split that into two parts. Um, the program to land astronauts at the South Pole, I think that keeps going. To take the second part first, by 2024, I think a Biden pres- Biden as president and the Republicans keep the Senate is the worst possible outcome for that date because the Biden administration probably wouldn't have felt the same rush for 2024. And I, I let me back up and say for any of your listeners who are unfamiliar um, for this, this program to return uh, humans to the moon, 2024 is everyone considers that to be very ambitious. And if everything had gone as well as possible, that would have been difficult. The uh, pandemic and all the work stoppages that caused already slowed things down. It was going to take more money. So if in a best possible world, 2024 would have been pretty tight. Um, I doubt the Biden administration will feel any reason to rush for 2024. And as leader of the Senate, Republican Mitch McConnell is going to feel no reason to give Joe Biden 
a cool moon landing right before he would run for re-election or, or maybe VP Harris would be running in 2024. So I don't think anybody's interest is going to be in making 2024 happen. So, And given that that was already going to be a very difficult thing to pull off, um, I think 2024 is absolutely out the window. That said, kind of like Space Force, um, I think the program is institutionalized enough that I don't think Biden's going to kill it, which is actually an accomplishment because there, you know, as, as you well know, there have been a lot of initiatives by a lot of presidents uh, since, uh, you know, since Apollo that often don't make it very, you know, don't last for into the next presidency. I think the Trump administration and with Administrator uh, Jim Bridenstine have moved fast enough and have enough moving that it's going to be hard to kill. And one thing that that will also factor into that, because of the how the pandemic has absolutely crushed the air travel industry, uh, companies like Lockheed, you know, Boeing, uh, you know, companies that are in the aerospace sector are really hurting for work. I mean, and Boeing is a big contractor on the Artemis program through SLS. So I think it's going to be, and in general, I mean, we, you know, we're in a big recession. We need a lot of jobs. So I, I think I, I think it's going to be unlikely that the administration's going to look to slash those sorts of jobs or to fire a bunch of people at NASA. And with the Republicans holding the Senate, uh, Senator, uh, Senator Shelby of Alabama is certainly going to look out or a lot of the Artemis work uh, comes out of uh, NASA Huntsville. So I'm pretty sure the program continues slower. That That's a slightly, people who follow NASA will find that a slightly worrying sign because kind of there's a history of programs at NASA that get stretched out and then never really happen. So, you know, I, I'm not sure that I can predict what happens longer term, but I, I think Artemis keeps going, but I would imagine that the date is going to end up slipping until a couple of years later into the 2020s. And so in other words, the, uh, the next, uh, after the next presidential election. I, I'm pretty sure, again, I, I cannot imagine why the Republican Senate is going to want to make it easy to have like Joe Biden welcoming astronauts back from the moon right before <laughs> the next election. I mean, that's, you know, that's just, I, I mean, I, I know it sounds cynical, but I mean, pol you know, politics matters here. I mean, I don't think the administration chose 2024 in the first place other than to get it done while Trump might still be in office. And on the one hand, that that's, you know, it makes sense to choose a date like that so that you can actually get it done before the next president takes over. Because like I said one of the real problems has been, you know, if you if you adopt a program to go to Mars, it's going to take 30 years. The president who's in office right now doesn't have a whole lot of incentive to worry about it because uh, he or she isn't going to look good out of it. The benefits are all really backloaded. So by choosing an early date, they were hoping to kind of really keep the administration focused on it. But uh, I think it's going to be really hard to try to stick to that deadline. Okay. So let's loop it back to China because <laughs> that's uh, that's the topic. It, it, do you think uh, it's possible to separate China's civilian space program from its uh, seeming pressing interest to militarize low-Earth orbit? And maybe I'm being unfair by saying they have a pressing interest, but they do seem to have an interest. They certainly do. Uh, I mean, all the major space powers do. In fact, people you know people may not realize even a lot of, of sort of middle-tier powers have military satellites, not weapon systems, uh, 
SpaceX just launched a reconnaissance satellite for South Korea. It's, I, I, I can't remember how many launches ago. I mean, it's kind of cool. SpaceX launches so much, it's hard to keep track of exactly, you know, how long ago any given launch was. But they just launched a reconnaissance satellite for South Korea or, you know, France, Germany, you know, not just the European Space Agency, but individual European countries, uh, Israel. So there are a lot of countries that have at least a few military satellites in the sense of for reconnaissance and communication. China, like the U.S. and like Russia, is sort of a, a full-service military space user. They are, you know, they won't have their own reconnaissance satellites. Uh, they now have a civilian and military navigational system called Baidao, which is similar to, in fact, has some capabilities even a little more than our GPS does. Uh, you know, you can do a sort of a text messaging kind of system through it, I, I gather. They have communication satellites, weather satellites, uh, probably uh, early missile, early warning satellites uh, to, to watch for attacks the way we do. So they are developing their military use of space uh, to support capabilities on Earth the same way the uh, same way the U.S. does, same way Russia does, um, and have an interest in, in what we call counter space capabilities, the ability to take away other countries' ability to use space whether through anti-satellite weapons or, you know, jamming or disruption of satellites, uh, you know, doing something to to prevent other countries' access. So, you know, I'm I wouldn't I'm not sure I'd say that they're in any kind of of crash program for military uses of space. In terms of is it possible to separate, you know, at one level, one one term I, I would put out there for your listeners that we often talk about in space policy is there's a real dual use dilemma dual use in the sense of it's really hard to distinguish a lot of civilian technology from military technology because they're the same. Um, a rocket, you know, a heavy lift rocket booster can launch, you know, a space tourism capsule. It can launch a space telescope or it can launch an anti-satellite laser weapon. It's really all the same thing. The technology, the high precision guidance that you would need for an anti-satellite weapon. Well, I mean, you also need that if you're going to have, you know, if you're going to rendezvous with a space station in a civilian application. The telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope is very closely tied in some design ways to National Reconnaissance Office spy satellites. I mean, it's really kind of a matter of does the telescope point down or does the telescope point up? A lot of the, you know, radiation hardened, miniaturized, robust electronics. So if you are, if you have, if you have the technology for a robust civilian space program, an awful lot of that technology is equally useful in a military context. So it's, uh, you know, when the U.S. military sometimes talks about, you know, wanting to, you know, have, have, dominant space capabilities, you know, it's really kind of hard to see how you really have that if anybody else in the world even has a good civilian space program, because it's pretty easy to uh, to turn things around for military applications. So in terms, you know, in of, terms of the in terms of oh, their sure. civilian mm-hmm. uh, space program, mm-hmm. what's driving it? Is it is it nationalism? Is it a, a dual purpose issue? Well, I, I think the the reason for having the civilian exploration and science program, uh, I mean, nationalism in the sense of national pride of, you know, demonstrating to their own people and to others their technological leadership. 
Um, I think also some of the same inspirational purposes that the U.S. will cite for its program, that you know, China clearly believes that it's important to have uh, technological leadership uh, to encourage you know, their best and brightest students to pursue technical careers, and that the space program, you know, same way that NASA will talk about how it, you know, not, not everybody who loves space as a kid ends up actually working at JPL or becoming an astronaut, but maybe it means more kids end up getting a science degree and, you know, working, uh, you know, at Facebook or designing electric cars for GM or Tesla. Uh, and I think the Chinese see that benefit as well. Um, I'm sure that individual, you know, the, I, I, I'm sure that the scientists who are actually working on their lunar and Martian missions are perfectly committed to the science. I mean, I don't, uh, you know, in the same way that even at the height of the Cold War, U.S. and Soviet scientists, uh, you know, were, were happy to, to not talk politics and talk about, you know, the cool rocks that we had each found on the moon. So, you know, I think it's a mix of things. As in the U.S., I, do I think China is putting this amount of money into space exploration for sort of pure science? No. But by the same token, I don't think that's why the U.S. does it either, especially our, our, our uh, human space program. You know, we see it as demonstrating international leadership, kind of showing show, showing our place in the system. You know, we, we can do things that other countries can't about making our own people feel good, uh, national pride, inspiring, you know, and, uh, you know, it just in the same way that Sputnik demonstrated that the Soviets had nuclear missile capability, you know, it's a kind of a quiet demonstration of capabilities that translate pretty, pretty directly into military power, too. And to give China credit, it's not easy to land a, a robotic uh, rover even on the moon. I mean, we've we've seen Israel had a, had trouble with its uh, with its lander, and uh, and in India too, India as well. Yeah, and uh, so the the Chinese have have had a couple of successful missions. Uh, this is the uh, the right now. I think the Changi Four and its U two rover mm-hmm. are still operational. If I if I'm not incorrect, is that right? That's uh, la- last I checked. Which uh, I mean, if I, I I can't swear that something didn't happen in the last few days, but yes, they're still you know they they go to sleep every lunar night, you know, every 14 days, and then become operational again. So uh, yeah, they have. Uh, I guess it's now been over a year and a half that they've had a uh, small rover operating in the, you know, not at the South Pole. The people get confused because it's it's located in a giant basin. And uh, one of your previous guests, uh, uh, Clive, Clive Neal, Neal, talked Clive about Neal. the yeah, Exactly. Right. The South Pole Aitken Basin. That's right. Uh, and- and it's been operating there. I mean, it's it the it's it's a pretty small rover. I mean, it's not going to go. I mean, it, it it's within a pretty short. You know, you, you could walk it in a few minutes. How far away it, it's it's been able to get, but there it's located on the far side of the moon in a very large old impact basin, uh, and still chugging away doing measurements. And they uh, there was we even discussed on the last uh, with the episode with Clive about the, about the possibility that the Chinese may have detected uh, what they claim could be mantle at the Aiken Basin, and he he was a bit skeptical about that. But I guess the jury is still out on that. I I haven't. Uh, 
Yeah, I, you know, we, I, I actually remember that conversation, and and I think for me to weigh in would, you know, I, uh, I, I probably know less about lunar geochemistry than he does about political science. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I, uh, I recall the discussion of different minerals and different types of basalts from that show, and you know, I, I would be cautious there. Um, but that certainly was the goal of the mission. I mean, just to to give a sort of a, a broad sense of why they chose that location. Uh, this is the oldest, biggest of the giant impact basins on the moon, probably going back more than 4 billion years. Uh, and they chose a large crater within that basin that, you know, more, re you know, formed after the basin was originally formed, Von Karman Crater. You know, it has a large flat surface covered with old lava flows. But then the clever thing that they did, a reason for choosing that, is there's an even younger crater nearby, uh, Finson Crater, where it's expected that that crater would have dug down into some of the deeper underlying material, thrown it out, and so you would have ejecta from the Finson Crater sitting on top of the lava flows in on Carmen Crater, so it would be a convenient place to get at some material that had been dug out. Now, when you get down to the, the details of exactly how deep and how much it was thrown out, I, I will absolutely defer to the planetary geologists on that. But I know that's the general concept. And, and I'll say the Chinese actually work, you know, they, there has been international collaboration there. I know uh, I, I've spoken to some of the uh, scientists at Brown University here at Providence, and I know uh, they've got a, a world-leading planetary geology department, uh, and I know some of their scientists consulted with the Chinese and coming up with that specific location, uh, hoping to get some, ho hoping to find pretty accessible material from as deep as possible in that basin. But to be clear, I mean, to bring it up, uh, NASA does not allow cooperation with Chinese space scientists at, at this point. With not NASA itself, no. Uh, in fact, e even to to the point that uh, when uh, Obama's administrator Charlie Bolden was in uh, China, you know, mem Republican members of Congress kind of raised questions like, it, "Was the administrator even allowed to to meet with Chinese officials at the level of scientific cooperation?" No. Now these are university scientists that I'm talking about. Yeah, NASA scientists. Uh, NASA is extremely limited in its ability to interact at all with Chinese uh, space scientists. Um, and one thing that, that Americans sometimes miss as a result of that, because we, we don't hear as much about collaboration, that's not true for Europe. So for example, most of these, uh, most of these uh, lunar and Martian uh, and, the, and the current Mars mission from China um, involve collaboration with, with European scientists, uh, even include like the, the probe going to Mars uh, the calibration target for its laser spectrometer was made by a French scientist. So there's actually quite a bit, uh, and China can still launch launch satellites built by European companies as long as they don't include any U.S. components. So since the U.S. largely ended any kind of commercial or NASA collaboration with uh, the Chinese space program, there's been quite a bit of, of European-Chinese collaboration that's developed, even with some of the European satellite firms specializing now in producing satellites that use absolutely no U.S. components so that they're okay to sell to Chinese firms or to launch on Chinese satellites. The uh, Changi program actually launched an old, its own relay satellite to facilitate this Changi 4 mission. When, when was that? Do you recall when that was actually installed in lunar orbit? 
Uh, let's see. Oh, Chang the Chang'e 4 landed in early 2019, so I think the relay satellite went up first and probably would have been in 2018. So yeah, the uh, and, and, and just to explain the basic concept here, the, uh, the lander is on the far side of the moon, so if you were standing where the lander is, you would never, ever see the Earth. Likewise, you can never look up from the Earth and see where it's located. It's always on the side facing away from the Earth. So that means you can't communicate with it because the moon's in the way. So they have a satellite parked out at the uh, uh, L4, Lagrange 4 point, uh, where it essentially sort of hovers beyond the far side of the moon, um, but where it's got enough of a view to be to see both the far side of the moon and the Earth at the same time. And so it just relays signals back and forth. Um, and that's, you know, that that's it's the first time that any mission has operated that way on the moon. In a sense, it's not a it's not a really revolutionary technology. I mean, we we have communicated with our rovers on Mars via orbital relay satellites, um, going back to the Viking probes in the 1970s, and it's not it. There's nothing terribly complicated about that. Just we've never needed a mission to do that. There were actually some I, some you know suggestions back in the Apollo era of having one of the Apollo manned missions land on the far side, that would have required a relay satellite. Probably they would have put two just in case because it would have been a big deal if the satellite died while the astronauts were on, on the lunar surface. But even in the 1960s, that, that wasn't seen as a very difficult technical obstacle, even though the U.S. has never, we've never actually run a mission that way on the moon. But I assume that uh, that if you did have a, a lunar relay satellite parked out at the, the Earth-Moon uh, Lagrangian point, you would uh, alleviate that problem of the communications blackout when you go around the far side? Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, you, you have raised an interesting question to which I don't know the answer. Uh, does the Artemis program plan to put one there? Because, I mean, at this point, uh, I mean, in the, every, everything in the 1960s was new and expensive and difficult. I mean, just at the level of electronics were so much bigger. <clears throat> I mean, you're, if you look at, you know, how big an Apollo computer was for what power it had, it's, it's, it's insane how primitive the technology was. I would assume that these days you could build a communications relay satellite that would be quite small and cheap and adequate to, to relay some data. So I have no idea if the Artemis program is planning to do that. It, it wouldn't surprise me just so that we eliminate that blackout. But, you know, I, uh, I'm not, hundred percent sure uh, what NASA's planning on that. Okay. So uh, this month, I think you mentioned the Changi 5 is, uh, is going to launch. Sure. It's the, uh, the latest in their series. It's another lunar landing mission. Uh, and just to, to fill in, you know, one through three, uh, Changi 1 and 2 were orbiters that did remote sensing of the lunar surface. Changi 3 had a rover identical to the one that's now on the far side of the moon, but it was the first one on the near side of the moon uh, to make it simple and, and not have to do the relay for the first test. Changi 5 will now be another mission to the near side of the moon, but this is going to be pretty different. This is actually a sample return mission. So the Chang'e 5 will land. It does not have a rover. Instead of a rover, what it has is a drill and a return capsule. So it will land. It will drill a core sample about six feet down into the lunar surface, wherever it lands. Uh, we'll load that material into a smaller rocket pod on top of the lander. That rocket pod will then take off. And what 
one thing that's interesting is they're going to use the same mission profile that the Apollo missions use called Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. So the, the Soviets did a, uh, a couple of robotic uh, sample return missions in the 1970s where they took off from the moon and came directly back to Earth. The thing that took off from the moon didn't stop, went straight back to Earth. That's a simpler mission profile. It's not as efficient, so they carry, they brought back very small samples. The Chinese are going straight for the more complicated version where they will have an ascent vehicle that takes off of the uh, lander, the bottom part of the lander, goes into orbit and rendezvous with an orbiter that's been waiting. And then that orbiter will uh, break out of orbit, you know, uh, go back to the Earth. And then there's a uh, return capsule with a heat shield that'll bring the samples back. So it looks a lot like the Apollo missions in that sense. And this will be the first time anyone's done a robotic mission using that sort of mission profile, which is the sort of profile you would have to use for a Mars sample return mission too. But what about much longer, much more difficult? But uh, so that'll be a first for the Chinese. But in terms of the sampling, are they Mm -hmm. no pun intended? But are are they breaking new ground uh, scientifically in terms of the sample they will return? They yes, and actually, we're not a hundred percent sure exactly where it's going to land. We know the general area. Uh, it's if you are looking at the moon at a you know if it's full moon and you're looking up at the moon in the far left, far upper left, um, is the largest of the dark patches that make the you know make up the the face of the man in the moon, the lunar maria, uh, Oceanus Procellarum. The the largest of those is in the upper left as we look at it from the from the northern hemisphere on Earth at least. And it's going to be we we've had one Apollo mission that landed in sort of the uh, the towards the, the nearest part of that towards the equator. Uh, Chang'e five is going to be up towards the the edge of the moon as seen from the Earth. And there are two interesting features that that it might be sampling. It's going to land in a region known as the uh, Mons Rumker region, and this is on one of the uh, big flat lava plains, like the the Mare, uh, which are dark because they are basaltic lava that is darker than the uh, the rock that forms the lunar highlands, as they're called. Um, but while most of those Maria areas are very very flat, um, there's an area, and there are a couple of other features like this, but Mons Rumker is an area about 70 kilometers across that actually has small shield volcanoes, kind of a cluster of little domes that are probably about three, little over three billion years old, uh, formed after the main lava plains. And scientists would be interested to know why did the lava there kind of well up and form domes? It implies the lava was more viscous and probably was some of the old, some of the, the last lava to come out from that particular eruptive episode, and that would be interesting. However, what what might be even more interesting, and I, I think this might be the more likely target from what I've read, nearby to the those little series of domes are some more of these very flat, featureless lava flows, except we can tell from how few craters that they're some of the youngest lavas on the moon. Probably not the very youngest. I know Clive Neal suggested there are some that might only be 100 million years old, Uh, but this area of lava is probably about 1 billion years old. And to put that in perspective, the moon, like the Earth, is about four and a half billion years old. So this would be lava that came out three quarters of the way through the moon's history. Most of the lava that we see on the moon is more like three and a half to four billion years old. So by lunar standards, this is really, really young lava. And scientists would love to get a good read on exactly how old it is, because that that kind of puts a bracket 
around how old a lot of things on the moon are. If it turns out that this lava that we think is one billion years old is really two or two and a half billion years old, then a lot of stuff on the moon happened in a more concentrated period of time than our best guess. If we find out that it was 100, bil- 100 million years ago, wow, that, that'd be pretty amazing. So, you know, scientists, we, we don't have any good samples of really, really young lava flows like that. So scientists are very eager to, because that, that will really kind of put a, you know, pin something down in the lunar timeline that right now is kind of a guess, but not really known for certain. So let's uh, briefly look at the the rest of the Changi program. Changi 6, I believe, uh, I read somewhere was scheduled for a 2023 uh, launch, and then 7 and 8. The, the Chinese are less transparent than is NASA or the ESA on upcoming missions. Like the fact that we don't know exactly where Chang'e 5 is going, even though it's launching in a few weeks. And in fact, we think it's launching in a few weeks. I mean, they're starting to set up uh, the uh, components at the launch site, um, but they haven't released an exact launch date. So the, the Chinese are, a li- they, they tend to give pretty limited details until something has actually succeeded and then they release them all. But the, uh, what, so, what so in other words, they're, about- they're not as uh, transparent in the, their intentions uh, pre-launch uh, as the, as NASA or the European Space Agency. Exactly. Um, to give them credit, they are getting much better about releasing data from their scientific missions once they've succeeded, uh, you can actually now go to a public website and download, uh, you know, photos and data sets from the Chang'e lander. You don't, you know, it's it's not like the the Soviets would release a few kind of press release materials back in, you know, the bad old Cold War days. Um, You can actually download the raw data that you could do scientific work with from their probes. But yeah, they, they, until they've, until there's a success, they tend to be pretty sparing with the details. But what we know about Chang'e 6 is the, the its number one mission is actually to be a backup in case Chang'e 5 fails. Uh, I mean, it's a pretty, Chang'e 5 is pretty ambitious. If something goes wrong, uh, they'll try, figure it out and try again. Assuming Chang'e 5 works, Chang'e 6 would be targeted at the South Polar region of the moon, probably to one of the areas where there is is thought to be lunar ice. Now, it's solar powered, so it couldn't actually go into one of the areas that's permanently shadowed. So it wouldn't be able to go into the the really deep, cold, volatile traps. Um, But it would still presumably be really interesting to get a sample, you know, even even from the general area. So the from what I understand, the uh, the most likely target for Chang'e 6, if 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 it is freed up, if it doesn't need to, to to retry Chang'e 5 will be somewhere around the South Pole. The timeline keeps slipping a little bit. Now, again, I mean, it's it's easy to say, ah, well, you know, they're not living up to their promises. Well, I mean, the, the NASA's SLS rocket was supposed to be well into operation by now, and then we won't see a first. So I'm not sure they're slowing. I'm not sure they're having any more delays than the NASA does. Um, but they actually have been pretty consistent in sticking to this roadmap for lunar exploration. So where, where we're kind of now getting out past the the early plan uh seven and eight i have not seen a lot of detail but they also would be targeted towards the south polar region um focusing probably even more uh directly on trying to 
characterize and sample the uh, volatiles and especially water ice that we suspect is there. Um, their eventual goal, they, they've talked about creating an international research base um, by which they initially mean an un, not a crude, not a human-occupied base. So I'm not entirely sure what an automated base means and kind of what what advantage a base is versus individual spacecraft. But they have now started, they have put out uh, feelers for international interest, uh, you know, to, I mean, not the U.S. can't really participate, um, but they're interested in finding international partners. So Chang'e 7 and 8, um, I, I have not seen a great, like, I couldn't tell you what the spacecraft is going to look like. I mean, there, I, I think a lot of it depends on Chang'e 5 and 6 working, but the next step that they've clearly identified, at, at least at the level of what the goal would be, would be more South Polar exploration, but more focusing more narrowly on um, identifying and figuring out how to use resources there that could support uh, permanent operations, making use of some of those resources on site. And uh, let's switch gears and, and talk about the uh, current uh, Chinese Mars mission, which I believe involves an uh, orbiter and a lander. The uh, Tianwen uh, space probe on its way to Mars. It's China's first deep space mission. Um, and, you know, I guess just to step back, kind of one general observation, China has been a little bit unusual in being so concentrated on the moon. The U.S. and the Soviets, of course, put a lot of emphasis on the moon in the 1960s up to the early 70s. Uh, and then there was a bit of a been there, done that. And we've really focused on deep space missions. We've kind of started coming back to lunar interest. And even a lot of the other countries that have been involved in unmanned planetary missions, have there been a few missions to the moon? The Japanese Cayuga mission, for example, um, India had a lunar probe, but a lot of countries have have really concentrated on deep space. I mean, Japan, uh, the European Union, uh, they have all sent many more missions beyond the moon. China really chose to concentrate on the moon first. Um, so this will be their first deep space mission. It's about half it and a UAE spacecraft and an American uh, rover are all about halfway roughly to Mars. Uh, they'll be arriving in late February. Uh, the Chinese mission is an orbiter and a lander. It's similar to the Viking spacecraft that the U.S. sent in the 1970s in that sense. Ever, our most recent missions have all been one or the other. They've, the landers have not have not stopped to orbit. They go, you know, they come screaming in and go directly to a landing. Uh, the Chinese mission will go into a parking orbit uh, and then at some point release its lander to go down and land. And the uh, lander includes a rover. It, it'll be a, a stationary, basically just a landing base. And it's got a rover that's roughly comparable to the Spirit and Opportunity rovers that we landed in 2004. Uh, solar powered, weigh a few hundred pounds each. So much smaller than our current Curiosity rover or the Perseverance rover, both more SUV size and nuclear powered. Uh, so, the, but the, but in that sense, the Chinese like to point out they're they're going for the whole thing at once. You know, they're they're doing an orbiter and a lander and a rover on their very first try for Mars, and they they point that out precisely because 
Uh, India, who China sees as quite a rival, ha- has now you know sent uh, a uh, a Mars orbiter. You know, Europe has has an orbiter. They've tried a lander. The European lander failed uh, on it on the last. Uh, the the last uh, Mars window two years ago, uh, so China, you know, they'd like to say we're not. They won't be the first at any of these. They'll be the only country that has pulled off such an ambitious first start for Mars. Is kind of how how they've been selling it. And uh, they also uh, are planning a space station uh, to become operational by the end of 2022. Uh, a 60 ton station capable of supporting three crew members with a service life of 10 years. And in fact, the ISS will discontinue service in 2024 if efforts fail to commercialize it. And the uh, CSS will be operational at that time. And they also have a Long March 5 launch vehicle that will transport the three 20-ton modules of the space station into orbit. Uh, is this all up to date? Is this information still correct? That 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 is correct as far as I know. Um, yeah, they they the kind of the 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 big new development in their space program, which enabled the Mars mission, it's enabling these lunar sample return missions and enabling the space station, is they uh, finally got successful with a new large booster, the Long March 5. Uh, I think that they tried to launch it in 2017, had a failure, succeeded in 2019. Uh, It's a booster that is, uh, it's somewhat more powerful than the best if you if you use a SpaceX Falcon 9 and you don't return any of you expend it all let the booster the, all the stages fall in the ocean the long march 5 is a little more powerful than that than a Falcon 9 kind of fully expended less powerful than a Falcon heavy uh, a lot less powerful than the the SLS but large enough to, for space station components or deep space missions so it's exactly right the best i understand their plan uh, is sometime next year they're hoping to launch the first core module and then a couple more modules. So this will be about 60 tons compared to the 400 plus tons for ISS, uh, able to hold three S. So it's um, you know I forget exactly how what the mass of Mir was, but it's it's I think a little smaller than the Soviet Mir uh, space station. What they've done so far, the Chinese have had a couple of single unit space stations like the old. Soviet Salyut space station. So not sort of pieces bolted together, but launch one lab, little laboratory module, have a space capsule dock with it for you know days to weeks. Uh, this is meant to be permanently occupied, three astronauts, and more like Mir or the ISS, and that'll it'll be composed of inter- multiple modules, changeable modules, all connected together. So that that sounds right. I will say though, I, I am skeptical that in only four years we would, you know, say, mm, you know, we couldn't find a paying customer. Time to deorbit ISS, watch a good <laughs> fireworks show, and we're done. I, it's not going to happen. I mean that. Any we in the same way that we we kept the space shuttle, you know, we we for many many different times said we're going to replace the shuttle, we're going to move. Uh, it, we're we're clearly not going to have a new space station by 2024. We won't be back on. We won't have a moon base by 2024. I I find it all, almost a hundred percent unlikely that we will simply give up and deorbit ISS and say we're we're done. Uh, when it comes to it, I would see ISS. I mean, I'm just uh, thinking out the out the top of my head, but maybe you would see it turn into some sort of academic research uh, station. 
not not just for NASA, ESA, and the and the National Space Agencies, and then also kind of maybe combine uh, uh, space tourism with uh, some sort of academic research in you know physics, academic research, microgravity yeah, research. You, you know, I've I've heard that it's not as you know what what's hurting ISS probably is that space is space access is becoming so cheap and easy not only with the lower launch cost from SpaceX but the revolutionary development in microelectronics and you know more you know better computer software i mean what you can do on a cubesat i mean you know uh, imagine literally a satellite a couple of feet you know just a a cube a couple of feet across, you can pack some really interesting science into that and you can build them pretty cheap. I mean, this is becoming something that, you know, engineering students do as a student senior thesis project. So it's becoming so cheap and easy to do all kinds of research without all the extra costs of being on a manned platform. So what what I what I've heard and and this, you know, I I you know again I haven't tried to do research on ISS and I don't, you know, I, I know more I, I talk more to scientists who are on the, the planetary side than like the microgravity or, or earth uh, like orbital physics side. Um, but that for a lot of the things they want to do, the, you know, ISS, it does, you, know, you wouldn't want to put a super good telescope on it because it vibrates more just because of all of the, uh, you know, the life support machinery running or the astronauts bumping around. Mm. Um, you know, it's got a lot of, there are so many things operating. It's not a very quiet electromagnetic environment. So it, it if you aren't, if other than for research on like humans and microgravity, um, it isn't necessarily a great, platform. Now, there might be, you know, commercial, there might be more opportunities to explore commercial manufacturing. The tourism, I mean, I, I think tourism, you know, maybe kind of like the same way for the moon. I figure the, the the most likely commercial product from the moon anytime soon is literally just bring back pieces of the moon and sell it to rich people. I mean, if you bring back a pretty moon rock, mount it you know, put it in a mount, you know, mounted on a ring. I mean, how many, how many billionaires out there would pay a lot of money to have a moon rock to wear around? I would prefer, I would prefer the maybe limited lunar mining. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but I mm -hmm. would prefer that the, the moon be seen as a science reserve in the same way a national park and, you know, like the petrified forest in Arizona is seen as a science, is a science reserve. And you can't just haul off and collect the uh, samples, you know, if you go into a national park. Mm -hmm. I would hope that will be the president for the moon. Well, I, I am sympathetic and, and I, I have had, you know, I, I have had angry space entrepreneur types talk, you know, tell me I'm a misanthrope and standing in the way of progress. Yeah, I've uh, even more so for Mars, where it's possible that, you know, whether there's life or even evidence of old life, I really want to make sure we figure that out exactly. uh, before yeah. we mess around with Mars too much. The I, I guess the good the, the plus side of the moon is there's a lot of moon. And a lot of it, you know, there are some very special parts of it, like those volatile traps at the South Pole. If you mess those up, they're gone. And that's a four billion year record that is irreplaceable. Absolutely, um, yep. So I, I really want us to, and I've even read that, you know, some, the, the, they're so delicate and cold that simply like shining headlights from a, an exploring rover might boil out some of the most volatile things on the top. So you, you really apparently need to be pretty cautious with those. And they're just pretty small in area too. And to the, um, un, and to the untrained eye, unless you're a geologist like Harrison Jack Schmidt, 
Uh, and the astronauts are also trained. You know, Clive Neal trained a lot of the astronauts uh, mm-hmm. uh, in geology to know what to look for. But, I mean, you can't really figure out what you have until you bring it back to a, an Earth-based lab, look at it. And what might, you know, seem to be kind of mundane, like a mundane moon rock. I mean, it really isn't. I mean, because you you have to have a trained eye look at it. And, you, you know, you don't want people up there spoiling science, good science, as you say. It, we don't exactly. have a handle on the moon yet. You know, maybe in 50 mm-hmm. years' time, uh, that'll be different. But uh, it's going to yeah, take I mean, the, some time. The good news is at least there is there is a lot of moon. Uh, you know, at you know, I I I'm I'm with you on this. I wouldn't you know if some if there's going to be a small scale operation to kind of bring back little bit you know small amounts of moon rock to sell for huge amounts of money to rich people and like maybe it helps fund scientific exploration. You know, I could live with that. But yeah, I, the, this notion that ah you know the moon's basically a giant rock quarry. You know, get out of the way and let us start i mean first of all i don't even i'm skeptical that there's that much easy money to be made moon mining i mean one of the where the way mining works on earth actually mining yeah to i'll I'll, you know try not to exceed my geology knowledge um but mining on earth works largely because of water and plate tectonics uh that can't make mineral concentrations like hot geothermal water running through rock deposits deep underground will dissolve certain minerals, deposit them elsewhere. And that's why you find gold nuggets or why you you find iron concentra- iron ore stems from back when the uh, Earth's atmosphere was first oxygenated and iron precipitated out of oceans that were be- de- having more oxygen in them and formed in ocean sediments about 2 billion years ago. A lot of those processes haven't worked on the moon. So, you know, the, the lunar rock tends not to be very concentrated. So, yeah, there's a lot of, say, titanium in lunar basalt, but there's a lot of titanium in a lot of rocks on Earth. People will say, well, we're running out of titanium ore. That is true if you mean concentrated titanium ore. If you're willing to pick up, you know, a, if I remember correctly, you're in the Seattle area. There's a ton of basalt all over Oregon and Washington. If you're willing to just pick up chunks of basalt and work really, really hard to get little tiny concentrations of titanium out of them, um, that's still just as good as as most of the rocks you would find on the moon, and you don't have to go to the moon to get them. So I'm 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 a little skeptical that there's anything super valuable to go mine on the moon, you know, in terms of kind of finding you know rock in the rocks and minerals kind of sense. And so uh, back to the space their space station, um, mm-hmm. I read somewhere that they are planning to launch a two meter optical telescope in low or- orbit called the Optical Module System that would actually be part of the space station, the CSS. It would be maintained in, in, by the uh, astronauts on board their space station. Is that the case? I mean, a, a two-meter telescope in space is, is a pretty big telescope because... The, uh, it's about... It's in the ballpark of... In fact, that, that sounds very much like a Hubble sort of telescope. Hubble was um, 2.4, actually, uh, 2.4 meters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that and which which conveniently is probably about the same size as the uh, spy satellites we built at the time. And it turns <laughs> out the uh, the the military was able to provide NASA with a mirror blank at low cost, you know, because they they apparently had some sitting around for unknown reasons. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's I I could I, I'm I'm actually not familiar with that program. I wouldn't be surprised. And we did actually have a uh, when Skylab. 
uh, was up. We it had a telescope mount, and we actually did do observations of the sun. Like I, I'm I'm assuming, yeah, the what you're describing, I don't. It wouldn't be attached to their station, if I understand. Um, now we for NASA, NASA has basically decided that the the benefits of being farther away from Earth in order to have, you know, because like Hubble has to deal with going in and out of uh, daylight and nighttime and the temperature shifts that causes. It's got to worry more about orbital debris. Uh, just about a week ago, uh, I saw going around on the internet a photo where it looks like one of the uh, SpaceX Starlink satellites uh, photobombed a Hubble research exposure. There's just a giant white streak across the middle of the photo. So we have been more and more, we're putting our space telescopes far away from the Earth, like the, the James Webb Space Telescope that NASA hopes to launch. I think it's now late next year, uh, may have slid into 2022. That's going to go out, I think, at one of the lunar Lagrange points, or at least, you know, well out into cislunar space. Um, you know, so it won't be maintainable by astronauts. We've generally come to the conclusion that serious research uh, space telescopes, um, it's worth giving up on the ability to do astronaut maintenance in order to have them farther away from Earth where it's quieter, the temperature is more even, you don't have as much debris to worry about. Um, you know, but the Chinese may want to demonstrate that they're they're sort of able to do do a Hubble of their own. Um, and it may they may also see it as being a way to, uh, you know, kind of give astronauts uh, some additional practice in, uh, you know, space repair and maintenance operations. So last year, uh, Vice President Pence stated that the U.S. and China are in a new space race with even higher stakes than the space race between the U.S. and the old Soviet Union. Is this the case? China still probably spends a little bit less than all the European countries put together, both their European Space Agency plus national spending. Uh, but China's clearly spending more than Japan, India, more than Russia. They may say to, they may have a goal in a very aspirational sense of catching up with the U.S., um, I don't think they they really expect that to happen. You know, e even 25 years from now unless you assume that the U.S. as a whole is really going to fall behind economically. And there are certainly people in China who expect that. Um, what I think China more realistically wants is to very clearly be the number two space power in the world and the number one space power in Asia. And I think sometimes um, we focus too much on how the how China's competing with the U.S. and not enough on the regional competition, where China clearly would like to it to be would would like to unambiguously be a space leader, you know, you know, be way ahead of the Indians and the Japanese and the Russians, um, and in terms of their space capabilities, and that they certainly are pulling off. Um, so I think they they would like to show that they're at least a serious, worthy competitor of the U.S. Um, you know, I, I I think there are absolutely advocates in China who think that they can and should kind of surpass the U.S. in, in a, you know, in a medium term kind of sense. I'm not sure that the Chinese leadership in a more broad sense sees that as as possible or worthwhile. Um but I think they absolutely are serious about putting a crewed mission on the moon. Um, with with at this point, I you know, if you'd asked me prior to the Artemis program, I would have said it was possible the Chinese would go back before the U.S. I think we've now established enough momentum. Uh, like the, even the Chinese, even their ambitious timelines don't 
foresee a Chinese landing before the early 2030s. So I think it's pretty likely they, uh, they've actually targeted the will be back first. They've actually targeted 2036 uh, as a yeah as a date. Yeah. yeah. So that's and I, I you know. E- Artemis may not make 2024, but that's still 12 years before the. So, I mean, people who worry that, you know, if the Chinese are only talking about a first lunar mission in 2036, um, you know, that's that's not exactly overtaking the U.S. anytime soon. Um, So I, I, you know, I, I think it's fair to see China as again, as clearly moving into a number two position and being a very capable comprehensive space power um in in a in terms of human exploration planetary missions uh civil uses like communication and earth sensing and military uses there'll be a there'll be a full spectrum space power um i i don't think they're likely to catch up and pass the u.s again unless over the next 25 years if kind of our political economic system falls apart and theirs stays together like i I don't think they're going to pass us in space unless they're passing us in a lot of other areas too and 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 i i you know it's hard to rule that entirely out china's a country that has a lot of problems of its own too so it's it's certainly possible they could end up not being able to stay on on this path for 25 years is there any evidence that the that the chinese are looking into using the moon a military base in the in the far future. Yeah, I, you know, I haven't seen that. I, I know there have been some concerns. Uh, Secretary of the Air Force uh, Barrett actually called the Chang'e 4 probe ominous. Uh, I, I wish, you know, I, I, I may work for DOD, but, you know, I, I'm not I'm not somebody who can send her an email and get an answer, so I'm not sure exactly what she meant, and I didn't see any journalists follow up. Uh, and I, I've seen, I, I know I saw uh, an Air Force intelligence uh, unclassified uh public statement, actually raising the possibility that the Chang'e 4 relay satellite was actually cover for a test of potentially stationing weapons at a lunar Lagrange point. Now, they really had no evidence other than you could imagine somebody doing that. So maybe that's what it is. Uh, so, I, I mean, and, and, you know, we, we pay intelligence people to worry about things like that. So that, that, you know, it's not crazy to raise the possibility. I've seen very little evidence of it. I don't see what the, what the real point would be. Like the, the moon is big enough that I don't think we're, you know, like the, there are some advocates in the U.S. who have said we ought to have a military presence on the moon because, you know, what if what if we have a lunar gold mine and the Chinese want to kick us out of our lunar gold mine and steal our lunar gold? Well, I'll worry about that more when we find a lunar gold mine and when there aren't any other lunar gold <laughs> mines um, and there's any sign the Chinese want to do that. So. I, you know, there there are a lot of military uses of space. There are a lot of things to really be concerned about in terms of what the Chinese are doing in space from a military standpoint. Um, militarizing the moon, I should also add the Outer Space Treaty, which both we and the Chinese have signed, um, actually prohibits stationing military forces or building military facilities or conducting weapons tests on the moon. And the Chinese, if anything, make more, you know, make more out of that sort of international law than we do. That doesn't mean they always follow it. So far in space, I mean, they they really have actually, you know, they they have done nothing to suggest that they're looking to to violate those sorts of agreements. And I just find it really hard to imagine what any sort of near-term benefit to a, a military base on the moon would be. But they, but they definitely do have interest in helium-3 mining. And, and just for the listener, I'll give them a parenthetical definition, a definition. Helium-3 
is a uh, rare non-radioactive isotope of helium that could be used in a fusion reactor, and it's estimated that 100 tons of helium-3 could power all of the Earth's energy needs for, for one year. And estimates are that there are 1 to 5 million tons of helium-3 on the moon. But uh, sustainable cold fusion, the type of power generation helium-3 would fuel, has not yet been invented or not proven successful. Uh, <laughs> at an estimated value of 4 to 5 Four billion to ten billion dollars uh, per ton. Uh, it's also been concluded by the Chinese, at least, that the revenue derived from mining helium three could make the moon economically viable, while simultaneously solving China's energy needs. So, uh, what are your thoughts about these numbers? You, you know, helium three would be a real wild card, and and I will say uh, we've mentioned Apollo seventeen astronaut geologist Jack Schmidt. He actually is an advocate of helium three as well. We we have not yet made not even commercial nuclear fusion. We have not made we have not made sustained controlled nuclear fusion work. Now, nuclear fusion is what powers hydrogen bombs, but in the sense of limited controlled sustaining it for a long period of time to extract usable energy as opposed to blowing something up. Um, Helium-3 would make a particularly efficient sort of fusion work. Um, it would be, you know, because it's, it, uh, it, well, I, you know, actually, I, I would have to go back to my, my college physics textbooks to remember exactly kind of why the helium, you know, why, but slamming that particular combination of protons and neutrons together with the deuterium, deuterium nucleus um, is a particularly attractive way to do fusion. Um, and it's thought that, yeah, as you said, helium-3 from the solar wind is probably trapped on the moon. Um, if we were to make that kind of fusion work and work well on the Earth, that would become a pretty valuable resource. We're a long way from making fusion power work on the Earth, so I, um, you know, I, I wouldn't bet on that. But you know, that is, I, I, if there were a reason the moon were to become commercially valuable, like in the, if we're talking in the hundred-year-out sense, um, that. You know, that would be one of the more plausible ways that maybe the moon would become deeply valuable. Um, and that would have real energy implications. You know, I. Uh, and it probably you know, would I, also I, have I, defense implications if, <laughs> if something that commercially well, valuable. That, that, that too. That too. Absolutely. So I, you know, I, I am, I am far enough afield from being a plasma physicist to, to have any opinion on making helium three fusion work. The fact that it's not the first you know the main lines of effort that we're doing um i think are just fusing fusing deuterium you know he heavy heavy hydrogen uh hydrogen a proton plus a neutron i believe the main uh fusion methods that we're working on are that which is which is easier um so it's pretty speculative like i i i wouldn't I, I, you know, if if the Chinese have that working in a lab somewhere and they're just quietly waiting to get the moon mine set up, they've really they've made an amazing breakthrough and are keeping an amazing secret. So, you know, I wouldn't rule that out in the, the very long term, but I think it's also pretty unlikely in the, the near term uh, just because we we haven't we haven't figured out how to make that technology work at all yet on the Earth. Uh, but the bottom line is, uh, in terms of a of astronauts uh, sending astronauts to the moon or Mars, the uh, Chinese at least are going to the moon for the first time and then on to Mars. They're not going. They're not going to go on a 
to your knowledge, they're not planning to to send make the giant leap to Mars itself before going. To no, the I've seen. Yeah, I don't. I mean, they they say they'd eventually like to send uh, humans to Mars. Yeah, I think that's that's way out. in the in. They're def- They're clearly focusing on the moon in the near term. Uh, in addition to the current Mars mission, I mean, they they say they would like to. They're interested in Mars sample return, which uh, I mean, we we're starting to get set up for a sample return mission. The Perseverance rover will uh, it'll be able to put samples in, uh, ca- you know, put put them in hermetically sealed capsules to for some future rover to pick up to bring back to Earth. Um, but even that is sort of beyond the serious plan timeline that the Chinese have. So yeah, they're very much, very much moon focused. Uh, you know, and Mars is, it, humans to Mars is, is very much just an aspirational statement at this point, which I mean, mostly it is to NASA too. So let's step back uh, for a minute and uh, mm-hmm. look at the, the whole uh, program, the whole Chinese uh, program overall. What is China's forte when it comes not to its military uh, space uh, not to its own space force or uh, or the equivalent, but what is its what is its forte in terms of its uh, civilian space program? Huh, that's you know it's a good question. Um, until SpaceX, the answer probably would have been affordable launch technology. Um, and this is actually if you if you want to talk about you know who. Who, who has been feeling pain as a result of Elon Musk? It's the Chinese space program. Uh, because uh-huh. after, the, after the space shuttle turned out to be first expensive uh, and then to, you know, you know, risky after the Challenger disaster, uh, the big beneficiary of that was China because they had started, they, they actually had a fairly slow development of their space program, but by the, by the mid to late 1980s, uh, they had some reasonably reliable and relatively cheap launchers by world standards. Uh, and for a time, uh, a lot of U.S. satellites were actually being launched from the late 80s till the late 90s. A lot of U.S. satellites were launched on Chinese uh, rockets after concerns about uh, loss of technology, about the Chinese stealing technology or, or that technology was being transferred. We closed down on that, but they still had a pretty good share of the international launch market. Um, SpaceX has been eating their lunch and just in the you know China's share of the see I've actually I've got that number here uh, yeah China fr- from 2010 to 2015 China had nearly half of the world commercial launch market um, currently they've got less than 10 percent and SpaceX is basically eating everybody's lunch um, so they they long had had a series of cheap and reliable boosters um, and SpaceX has kind of leapfrogged everyone. Uh, in that sense. Um, and, you know, China now has a new generation of boosters coming out, but they, they you know, they, they had long, uh, you know, really had, had a, been the, the leader in providing reliable, re- reasonably reliable, low-cost launch services. Um, for their civilian program, you know, I, I think I'd say what really sets them apart is their lunar concentration. Uh, and again, this may be changing for the U.S., um, but China has spent 20 years with a pretty focused uh, effort mapped out for the moon. It's, you know, it has not been a crash program. I mean, the their first lunar orbiter was um, was 13 years ago now. So it's been pretty slow and steady, you know, uh, but they have they've really done well 
at mapping out a set of objectives and having an integrated program where their science missions are directly aimed at practicing things and learning things that they'll need for a human mission. Like I mentioned, the Chang'e 5 is going to use this lunar orbit rendezvous technique to get its sample back. that probably allows a larger sample, but it's also exactly what you would need to do for a human mission. So they're in a way that, you know, for for NASA, the human missions have been pretty separate from the planetary missions for a long time. You know, different technologies, different goals. Uh, China has been been able to take the resources that they have and develop a pretty tightly integrated focused program that does good science on the way to putting Chinese citizens on the moon. What drew you personally to research uh, Chinese space policy? Well, you know, I've I've had I've had an interesting evolutionary path. I actually grew up thinking I was going to be an, an astrophysicist or a planetary scientist. Uh, volunteered at the uh, planetarium in Portland, Oregon, where I grew up. Uh, when I got to college, I ended up discovering that I was uh, probably better at uh, writing papers and and talking politics than I was doing uh, advanced physics math. So I went into political science, uh, but have continued to be very interested in space science and the politics of space programs. Um, and, uh, you know, while I've also spent some time focusing on the uh, politics of US, the U.S. defense program and defense planning while at the War College, uh, as we've been paying more attention, as space has become a bigger national security issue uh, and more focused on great power competition, you know, I've, I've kind of pulled my, my lines of interest a little more together. And for the last several years, I've been uh, devoting more of my time to understanding uh, politics of the U.S. space program, but also the Chinese space program, uh, because they're, you know, they are going to be our main competitor. Or if, if the geopolitics if geopolitics improves, uh, they're still going to be our main, you know, they would be our main potential partner. So in terms of understanding what else is going on in space and in a country that a lot of Americans don't pay a lot of attention to, uh, you know, don't have a good read on, uh, you know, I have, and and especially given my, my perch uh, in a U.S. military institution and the focus that we're putting, um, I also think it's important to have some, some civilian academics looking at this as well. I mean, I, I may work for the military, but, you know, I, I come at this really as somebody, you know, from a civilian academic perspective, as opposed to kind of a, 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 a military mindset. So, you know, I try and take a broad perspective and, you know, recognize that uh, China, China is a challenger. You know, they, they potentially pose some threats, um, but there are some real, you know, potential opportunities. And, you know, I, 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 you know, if, if we learn a lot about the moon because, you know, because the Chinese bring samples back, you know, I'm still thrilled to learn a lot about the moon that way. So um, David, do you have a way that listeners can contact you via social media? I do. Uh, I am active on Twitter. Uh, I have, uh, you can post this on your website, uh, but if, if listeners can follow along, I'll spell it out. I am D Burbach, uh, D is in David and then Burbach, my last name, one word on Twitter, and they are welcome to look me up there. So as always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. David Burbach, let's hope that we see boots on the lunar regolith again soon. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. Thank you very much, Bruce. Uh, I appreciate the chance to talk to you. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormady. 
please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.